I have a good friend. His name is Ken. He's a pastor. And back several years ago, after we had gotten out of college, he got married to a young lady named Marla. He was employed by a ministry where he traveled to different churches every week. Sometimes he would speak at a youth conference, sometimes a youth camp, sometimes for the weekend worship services, but he traveled all over Missouri and Kansas speaking. Ken was a gifted speaker. Married Marla, and they didn't have children, so she just traveled with him everywhere they went. Uh, About two years into their marriage, Marla gets pregnant, and they're expecting this baby, and They, like a lot of young married people, think, you know, this won't be a drastic change. We'll just, uh, Marla said, I'll just continue to travel with Ken and the baby and I will go and all of that stuff. And uh, the baby comes along. About a month or two into this new traveling experience with the baby, Marla decides it's not as much fun as it was when she was by herself and no baby traveling with Ken. So she decides she's going to stay home. Well, Ken travels, and he's driving all over the place, and he hates traveling by himself. Doesn't like it at all. So he comes home to Marla and says, listen, it's, it's just different traveling with just me. So they talk, and they decide that Marla's best friend, who's still single, will travel with Ken through the week. So Ken and Jennifer start traveling so he can have a traveling companion. A few weeks into that experience, he comes home one weekend, and Marla's really bent out of shape. And he says, what's wrong? She says, Ken, I don't know about this arrangement of you traveling with Jennifer through the week. I know you get lonely on the road and all of that stuff, but I just kind of feel like I'm not very important. And Ken says, but Marla, you're my wife. Jennifer's just a traveling companion to keep me from being lonely through the week. Now, I can see ladies shaking their heads. Even with these lights in my eyes, I can see. I can read those kind of expressions through the lights. You're thinking, I would kill him. Well... Now, all of that is true right up to the point about Jennifer traveling with Ken, okay? But I heard him tell that several years ago, and it stuck with me because it illustrated a point of the very thing of a passage of Scripture we're going to look at today out of Colossians 3. It's our Life Journal chapter for tomorrow, so you'll get to look at some of it today, and you'll get to read it again tomorrow if you're life journaling with us. But Colossians chapter 3, if you'll go ahead and turn there in your Bibles, your iPads, smartphones, whatever you have, turn and just kind of stay right there because I'm going to read four sentences in just a minute. I want you to follow with me. And we're going to camp out in those four sentences because it's amazing what God tells us in just four sentences. (laughs) As I think of Ken trying to convince Marla, even fictitiously, of, of... that she's the main woman in his life. You keep that thought in your mind as we read this scripture, and then we'll unpack how this, that story relates to this scripture in just a minute, okay? Beginning 
the first verse of Colossians 3 says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, and the strongest translation of that would be since you have been raised with Christ. This, this passage is speaking to Christians, those who have been born again. Since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. The New American Standard says that last verse this way, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed. That is, He's revealed at the last day, the end of the age, when all of earth is gone and, and we're in heaven and awaiting the new heaven and the new earth, uh, then when Christ is revealed or appears at that time, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And glory is one of those words that's often used in Scripture for heaven, for when we go to live with God. Now, there's some amazing truths in these four short sentences. But the one I want you to notice first is out of that last verse, verse 4 where it says, when Christ, who is your life. Think about those five words with me. Christ, who is your life. Now, most of us in the room understand if we repent of our sin and pray to receive Christ, that He gives us life. He gives us new life. He gives us eternal life, okay? But this doesn't say Christ who gives you life. It says Christ who is your life. Now, here's where most of us are in our daily lives. We're running at about 5,000 RPMs most days from early morning to late in the evening. We're looking at our schedule and our priorities and saying, how am I going to get all this done today or this week or this month or this year? And so we know that we have to be intentional. So before we begin the week, say Sunday evening, we sit down and we schedule our priorities. We say, I have to get this and this and this and this done. If, if this doesn't get done, I can let that ball roll to the corner. But all these other balls I have to keep in the air. And then we, attack, we tackle our week. And we go at it full speed ahead. We get to the end of the week and we reshuffle all those tasks. We look back over the week and we assess whether we did a good job of keeping those priorities in line and getting those things done, not giving in to the tyranny of the urgent because somebody will come along and try to put a task on your list that's not one of those important ones, not one of those big rocks in the jar. And the tyranny of the urgent can rule our lives. Probably in your workplace, you've been sent to seminars and workshops on time management, how to keep the big rocks in the jar first so all the little sand and stuff doesn't fill it up before the big rocks get in there. You have become, many of you have become very good at keeping the main thing, the main thing in your life. Well, in our Christian life, we approach it in a very similar fashion. Pastor Charlie says, you ought to be in church. Now, for me, that may be a little more significant than you. You know, it's kind of my job to do what Pastor Charlie assigns to me. So get to church. Go to church regularly. I do it about four times a weekend usually, or at least three. And read the Bible, life journal, uh, pray, all of those kind of spiritual-sounding things. And we put those in, and, and in our Christian life, we treat it like our work life, and we say, 
all of those are the spiritual things. Those are the main priorities. I'd better do the main things. And we get to the end of a day or the end of a week, and we look back over it and say, how did I do at keeping the main thing the main thing? Uh, I did pretty well this week. I made it to church. Um, I did my life journaling five out of the seven days. Hey, that's a lot better than the week before. I'm, I'm gaining ground. Uh, I prayed. I didn't, you know, do whatever else, and I didn't do this, didn't do that. I did this and did this. And we kind of assess it, and we look back and say, I think I'm making progress here sometimes. Sometimes we look at it and we go, whoa, I'm sliding downhill. But we will congratulate ourselves when we keep Jesus as our main priority, as our main love, as our main thing, our main helper in life. So I'm evaluating my life that way, all right? I'm speaking to me first because God uses this scripture to speak to me most strongly. And I, I share it. And I believe God will use it to speak to you as well. So that's how I'm evaluating my life. And then this verse comes along. This one little phrase. When Christ who is your life. And that neat little prioritized organized world gets blown apart. With five words. Suddenly I feel like my buddy Ken When Marla said to him, Ken, I'm I'm not feeling very important here. And he says, but after all, Marla, you're the main woman in my life. She's just this or this or this. And so suddenly, I feel kind of like the guy who's saying to God when he says, I want my son Jesus Christ to be your life. And I feel like I'm answering, well... Well, he's, he's the main priority in most of the time. You know, I go into that little whiny voice when I'm trying to justify myself. And God just calmly, patiently waits because he's already stated the truth of what he wants for my life. And he's waiting to see if I'll trust him with the deep, deep things in my life. And it brings me to a basic truth that I want to share with you today. This is the foundation of all we'll look at in these four sentences today. The basic truth is this. Jesus Christ did not come to earth, live a sinless life, die on the cross, and rise again to simply be one of the main priorities in my life or in your life. He wants to be my life. He wants to be your life. You may say, "Mm, that just kind of sounds like semantics. You're playing word games. I don't think so. I think God is very intentional in what he wants to do. He wants to be my life. He wants to be the consuming thing in my life. I think back to, for me it's a long time ago, for some some of you it may not be very long ago. But I think back to the first time when I was 16, my brother was the worship leader at a church in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was spending the summer with him just before my senior year of high school working with him, and we came walking out of the church, and this unbelievably beautiful girl walked up. And my brother said, Dwayne, I want you to meet the prettiest girl in our church. This is Summer Dean. And I said, for once, I think my brother is really right. Now, I became, in moments, 
I became consumed with getting that girl's attention. A few weeks later, two or three weeks later, they had a youth retreat, a weekend youth retreat. Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. If ever there was a description of somebody being consumed, it was me those two and a half days. You see, I knew there were a lot of other guys on that retreat that were better looking than I am, than I was. See, I'm not under any delusions that I'm the most handsome guy in the world. I have a dose of realism. There are a lot of guys who are better looking than I am. Some of them were on that weekend retreat. But there weren't any girls who were any better looking than this little Summer Dean girl. Now, what I didn't have in good looks, I made up for in tenacity <laughs> and perseverance. Because those of you who know me very well know that my wife is now Summer Arledge. And so I won. How I did it, I don't know. Guys who meet me and I introduce them to my wife, they'll go, Dude, when you convinced her to marry you, you outpunted your coverage. <laughs> they know. I was consumed. And I was com- consumed for more than just that weekend because she said later, she told me, I was, you were, I was six foot two then, just like I am now, but I weighed about 155 pounds. She said, you were so skinny, your hands were big, your ears stuck out. She said, you were like a little puppy, all feet and ears. I said, hey, when I got, got over being skinny, all of that went away. So I got rid of the things she objected to. But listen, I was consumed with chasing that girl. It became my life's pursuit. Now, that illustration still falls short of the consuming passion I think God wants to be in our lives. But what would it be like if instead of Jesus being my main priority every week, if he consumed my life like that girl consumed me for that weekend and for months and years later and to this day in my life? What would it be like if I was that passionate about chasing after him and just turning everything over to him? I think, for me, my schedule would look different. And I think for you, your schedule would probably look different, wouldn't it? What about your relationships? Do you think our relationships would be healed and reconciled in a different manner if Jesus was our life instead of being a priority in our life? What about our fears? Those fears that drive our irrational behaviors that we keep hidden as best we can. What would, what, what would change about those fears that drive us? What about our joy? What about our peace? What about the rightness of our, our sense of being in a right relationship with God? Would those things change? I believe they would change radically. Now, just in case you think Hey, Dwayne pulled out these five words, and he just kind of did some gymnastics with those words, mental gymnastics, and made them say some stuff that the Bible doesn't say. Listen, this is what the Bible says. Let's look at three other verses, three out of many. But I want you to look at these three verses just so you know that you know I'm not off on some goofy tangent taking you down a road that doesn't line up with Scripture. This does. 2 Corinthians 4.11 says this. For we who live 
are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. In other words, it's shown in our daily life, the way we live our daily life. Galatians 2.20, a verse that some of you may have memorized. If you haven't, it would be a great one to memorize. The Apostle Paul says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And then one final sentence, Philippians 1 verse 21 says this, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. I am consumed with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul is saying, listen, I think all of Scripture is teaching us this one simple concept that those five words say, Christ who is your life. Now, today you may be here. And you're considering this thing of becoming a Christian. A friend has been talking to you and saying, Hey, I'd love for you to give your life to Jesus Christ, to be born again. And you're considering it. And so you're sitting here listening to me thinking, Wow, that sounds kind of radical. You know, my friend's been talking to me about accepting Christ because he'll forgive my sins. But I didn't know it included all those things. Here's what I can say to you. If it sounds radical, it is. It is. I'm an old guy, 58 years old, okay? In 1972, July 22nd, 1972, I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I finally gave in, gave up, gave my life to him right after my senior year of high school. And so here I am in a few weeks, 41 years later, and here's what I can tell you. Yes, it's radical, but it is worth it. It's the only way to live this life with joy and fullness. And it's certainly the only way to go into the next life. Radical? Yes. Worth it? Absolutely. So let me show you uh, what the Bible says in these four verses that convinces me that letting him be my life is worth it. Absolutely worth it. And here, here's the thing that amazes me. God's so smart. He put the proof right in these four sentences to say why he's done what he's done And how he's done what he's done so we can trust Jesus to be our life. He's not just asking us only to step out in faith. He's backing it up. And so I want to show you three things about salvation and about Jesus that convinces me it's worth letting him be my life, not just a main part of my life. Three truths I'll give you, okay? The first one is Jesus Christ gives you New life. And the answers and the proof of all all three of these things are right in these four verses. (coughs) Excuse me. The two aspects of our new life that Jesus gave us, right in these verses. Verse 3 says this, you have died. You've died to the old life. In fact, the word is past tense, a completed action. It's done. It's over with. You've died. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this way. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. See, we've died. Now you say, okay, I've I've accepted Christ and I don't understand this death thing because I I didn't feel dead and then feel alive and all of that stuff necessarily. Here's how it works according to Scripture. In Romans chapter 6, it says the wages of sin is death. The payment for sin is death, always. God is holy. 
He lives by that. He created that uh, righteous law. And so he lives by that. Here's what he did, though. He gave Jesus Christ to die and pay that price for sin. And when we are united with him, when we repent and believe, we are united with him, he gives us the benefit, the credit of his death. His death becomes our spiritual death, and we don't have to die physically ourselves in order to gain salvation. We're united with him in death. But not only that, he doesn't just leave us dead to the old life and kind of in this nothing state. But verse 1 says it, since you have been raised. Guess what that word raised means? It's, it's a w- Greek word that means co-resurrected. So not only are we dead with him, but we didn't have to generate enough life to be resurrected either. He did it. And we get to be united with him, and we get the benefit of his life. So he gives us new life. We no longer have that penalty of death over us if we've been born again. We have been given the new life, and we're not under that penalty of sin. We've been raised. The second thing I would say is this, right in these verses. Not only does he give us new life, but he sustains that new life. I don't know your church background. I do know a lot about my church background. And they had part of it right, but they got some critical things wrong in the churches I grew up in. They said, everybody has sinned. They were right. They said, everybody needs to be born again. They were correct. They said, Jesus Christ is the only way we can be born again. They were correct. They said, if you will place your faith in Jesus Christ, repent of sin and believe on him, you'll be born again. He'll give you eternal life. Then their teaching said, if you sin a certain amount, nobody ever quite defined where that line was for me, but if you sin beyond a certain amount, you will lose that salvation he gave you. They missed what Scripture said right there. You see, Jesus himself said it's eternal life. Now, the word eternal, last time I checked, meant forever, didn't it? Doesn't it? It still does, right? So either Jesus made a huge mistake when he called it eternal life, or these people who were teaching me this particular teaching, they made a mistake. As I studied the Bible in my freshman year of college, sitting in my dorm room, reading through the book of Romans, one night it suddenly dawned on me. The lights came on. This salvation thing is not up to me. It is such an amazing thing that it has to be from God. And the Scripture says it is from God. So he sustains that life. Look at verse 3. It says this. Your life, that spiritual life he gives you, is hidden with Christ in God. See, it first says we share a spiritual life with God the Father and God the Son. Oh, not because we're so special, but because He gave that to us. Second Peter 1.4 is a, an amazing verse that says, we as believers have become partakers, that is, sharers in the divine nature. Why? Not because we had that divine nature, but because He gave us of His life. The second thing this, this means to me, or illustrates here, the word picture that shows he sustains our spiritual life is this. We are concealed from the world, that hidden. Um, 
In 1 Corinthians 2, it says that the natural person doesn't comprehend the things of God. We're hidden. If you have a friend you've been talking to about Jesus Christ, and they struggle to understand this whole thing of a new birth, that's an example of the spiritual things being hidden until someone yields their life to Jesus Christ. He comes in, gives you life, and gives you a spiritual ability to begin to understand this, the truth is, is hidden from those who haven't yet believed. The third thing that this says that I think is really, really, really important here for us is that we are forever secure. Forever. Remember, Jesus called it eternal life. But Satan, our spiritual enemy, can never own us again. Because in order to own us, he would have to go through God the Father, God the Son, because our new life is hidden with Christ in God. Hey, that's secure. And we trust our feelings instead of trusting the truth of Scripture when we worry whether He can keep us saved for the rest of our lives. Let me share some Scriptures with you. (coughs) Sorry. John 10, 28 says this. I give them, uh, Jesus is speaking, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Pretty good guarantee, huh? The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, in fact, if you have something available, turn to this passage in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, and you can follow along because I think this is kind of the summit, the the Mount Everest summit of Scripture that speaks about uh, how sure our salvation is, how sure it is once you've been born again, how complete it is. The Apostle Paul says this, What shall we say then to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, it's a rhetorical question. He doesn't completely answer it with just a yes or no, but the obvious answer is nobody. 32 says, he did not, Who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect, the believers? It is God who justifies. Who is going to condemn? In fact, in other words, who's going to condemn those believers? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. There's that picture. Died and raised. The picture when we're united with Jesus, we get to join that. We get the benefit of that without having to literally physically die. Uh, He died. More than that, he was raised. Who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. He's the high priest, the only priest we need in order to go to God. Then Paul begins to answer these questions, ask questions, and he'll answer them. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, just a whole stack of words meant to give the picture of all the bad things in the world that could cause us to think we're being robbed of salvation. And he answers, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors. As I study that phrase, it really means hyper-conquerors. So it's not just kind of we barely win in the end, but more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's Jesus. For I am sure that neither, and listen to this list, Death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
And in case he missed anything, he says, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now listen, that's pretty much everything in the world. And he says, none of those things can separate us from the love of God. I need that guarantee. You need that guarantee that he will sustain the spiritual life he gives you in order for what he called eternal life to really be eternal. That he gives us life, he sustains that life. Now that takes care of until we die, till we kick the bucket here in this life, okay? But he didn't stop there. The third thing he says right in these four sentences is that Jesus Christ will complete your new life. In other words, I still have questions. I, I'm, I'm excited that he takes me to the end of this life, that he sustains that. But I still have questions, what happens when I cross over to the other side after I die? You have those questions too. If you don't, you should have those questions. Those are important questions. What happens after I die? Verse 4 says this, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you, those who are believers, will also be revealed with him in glory. Now, this be revealed or appear means a couple of things. First, when Jesus is ultimately revealed as Lord of all in heaven, the new heaven and the new earth, the end of time, in Revelation 19 it speaks about that, and it's when he's revealed as King of kings, Lord of lords, it says the armies of heaven, all those who are born again through all the ages will be there with him. The guarantee that I'm going to be there because he adopted me as his child. He accepted me. He gave me new life. And so I'm going to be there with him when that happens. But secondly, also when, when he is ultimately revealed to the whole world, then all of those who have chosen to not believe, all of Satan's angels, all of the spirit world who is, that is against God, will also on that day have the absolute complete truth about who you and I and all the born-again people of all the ages are and how we relate to the Lord Jesus Christ and how we are free, how we are free from condemnation. It will be revealed on that day. It will no longer be hidden. He completes whatever he starts. Listen, that's the complete package, I believe. I know what God's Word says is true. He's come into my life. He's changed my life. And here's what I would say to you now. Let's come full circle. That describes a God, a Lord, who gives us the complete package when we yield our lives to Him. He's worthy of me turning everything over to him and saying, Jesus Christ, I'm no longer going to just say you're the main priority. You're the main man in my life. You are my life. It is not just semantics. It's how we live our life. It's how we let him live his life through us. There is a difference between me living my life trying to please God and letting him live his life through me. That's what I'm talking about today. Listen, if, if you're still considering this thing of, of giving your life to Jesus, let me give you a guarantee. He will accept you. He will adopt you. He will sustain that spiritual life through all of your life. 
and he will complete that in heaven. You can trust him if you'll just repent of sin and give him your life for the rest of your life. You'll turn it over to him. He will transform you. Christians, those who are believers, like I am, he still has transformation he wants to do in our lives. He's adopted us, but he's working in us and through us.